0: And good morning CFRCers, you just heard Indie Wake Up Call, great as usual every morning from 9 to 10. Right now we have a relatively new segment, last week was our first, this week is our second. This is called Life of Kingston, where we take a look at all different types of cultural and arts events happening in Kingston in your community this summer. It's only airing uh, for 8 weeks, we've got about 7 shows left including this one. So without further ado, let's get underway and talk about what's happening in Kingston this summer. CFRC, as independent radio, has to give voice to the people without a voice, and so to do that, we figured, hey, it's probably best to get some coverage on what happened this past weekend, and that was Pride, an insanely important cultural event. And of course, this entire month is Pride Month. But downtown, if you didn't go this past weekend, it was the Pride Parade. And just to recap some of what happened uh, and some thoughts of hers, we brought in Ruth Wood for an interview this past Monday. So without further ado, here is that interview. And good morning. Today we are here with Ruth Wood. Ruth is the current president of Kingston Pride, and for those of you who did not venture downtown this past weekend, there was a vibrant Pride parade, part of the Greater Pride Month, uh, and the parade was spearheaded by the efforts of Ruth and her team with Kingston Pride. Today we have Ruth in the studio with us to discuss the past, present, and future of Pride in Kingston. Welcome, Ruth.
1: And it's a pleasure for me to be here.
0: Pleasure to have you. Uh, so let's kick it off with the past. And as I understand, this was a big anniversary for Pride worldwide. Um, but I've seen conflicting reports on the history of Pride in Kingston. I've seen some that are stating it's the 30th anniversary this year. I've seen some that are stating it started in 1992. Can you speak a little bit to the history there?
1: Well, the best the best information that we could find said it was that this was our 30th anniversary. And I also talked to a person who was in what she says was the original Pride March. And, and, and she also says that was 30 years ago and, and describes this little huddle of, um, I think primarily lesbian women who, who um, walked quickly down three or four blocks of the sidewalk on Princess Street and, and that was the first attempt to have a, a, a Pride walk so um, so anyway we're going we went with 30 years so we call this our 30th anniversary
0: so it's big for Kingston and it's big worldwide but in terms of the scale and the growth that we've seen over the past couple of years uh, what do you think made that possible since you know 30 years ago where it was just a small huddle group to this year where it was thousands of people
1: right so so I mean it's it's one of those things that each little step puts us A little bit along the way and I mean that's really obvious but when I'm talking about a little step it's each each year the event becomes a little more um, stronger and and so I think that's what happened in the early years is whereas the first year they couldn't even get a permit to walk down the street they were on the sidewalk and gradually they, they managed to get it to a point where they could get a permit so that they could walk down the street. and there were more numbers involved. And, and of course, a lot of it e- evolves around the fact that, as as Kingston Pride as an organization was working away, the, the whole um, the whole way that, that the world sees uh, originally lay um, gay and lesbian people, but now recognizing, other sexual orientations, and then uh, transgender people came in and, and started being you know demanding to be recognized as well, and so it's it's not like any of those people weren't around before. It's just that with each little bit of of um, of movement, the other surrounding groups get more confident, and and eventually we're all more confident than we ever were about. St- Dating our place, just wanting to people to know we're here, we're proud. We we don't see ourselves as some kind of weird thing. We're just a naturally occurring phenomenon, and um, we just happen to be different from the majority of people. That's all.
0: So I guess building on that confidence, this year was the most public that Pride's been. It was staged downtown primarily, and I've, I've seen it was mm. started in parks near downtown and then kind of did a loop around Princess Street, whereas this year it was staged directly in the heart of Princess Street.
1: Yes, that's right. We in, in past years, like I've only been involved on the Pride Board for two years. This is only my second year. But I know for the few years before that that I was attending Pride events, they all started at one of the other parks. We would take a loop down Princess Street and make our way back to the park. And um, what we realized as a board was that really, it, it's, it's the walk down Princess Street where people really get to see us. And we thought, so let's let's just concentrate the whole walk down Princess Street and, and not s- scoot back to some other park. So this year we started in Victoria Park. That's where we mustered everybody and got all the floats in order. And, and then we went right out onto Princess and walked all the way down right across Ontario in front of City Hall and into Confederation Park uh, and stayed there. We didn't have to, you know, everybody didn't have to walk back to some other park. And of course, Confederation Park is right, as you say, in the center of downtown. There are all kinds of people there. And and so this Saturday, it was really interesting because we had lots of people from all other walks of life participating in watching the parade and being involved in the events that we're taking on, taking in the entertainment that we had there that day. So, uh, it just, it just, yeah, it made it much more public, but it also really involved the rest of the community, which is important to us.
0: Well, it's important to ensure that you commemorate the people who, uh, put so much effort in so that you can have these parades and these Mm -hmm. celebrations Um, but at the same time it's important to celebrate in the community obviously right Mm -hmm. Uh, so how do you balance both that commemoration and that celebration at the same time or can you do both at the same time or does it have to be a balance
1: that's that's been a a constant um thing that the any pride committee has to to work with is, is finding the the you use the word balance, and that's that's probably the best way to put it because certainly when we look back, we remember um, the difficulties that we had. Um, this year is not only an important anniversary for, for the for Kingston Pride, it's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, and it's the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalization. Of homosexuality in Canada. So, so those were two huge events that again happened long before Kingston Pride even existed but they both made a big difference. The Stonewall Riots were the thing where, where the, um, the LGBTQ plus community finally said, you know, that's it. We don't have to put up with this treatment, we don't have to be beaten and arrested. Um, we are just being who we are. So, so the Stonewall riots went all the way around. the The, the riots were in New York, but the the um, the outcome of that flashed all the way around the world. Where particularly at that time, um, gay and lesbian people started saying, "We can be activists. We can start." Um, um, making sure that we're heard making sure that people see us as as good citizens and and uh, that's kind of was a, an important beginning and again the fact that the Canadian government moved to start the process of decriminalization because before that um, it was actually illegal to to be gay and uh, so so that was a huge step that gave people confidence to actually be public
0: and so, Looking back, it's important to remember some of the people who actually put in the effort, uh, specifically the individuals. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to actually remember some of these individuals who were trailblazers in those early years?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that we did this year was we uh, went to the, the queer archives in Toronto and we asked them if they would work with us to, to actually highlight some of those trailblazers so they they gave us i think it was 18 portraits of people who who were all canadians who had worked in one way or another to advocate for for the for for the the smaller community i'm going to call it the queer community um some people don't like the word queer but that's what i'm comfortable with and and there are a lot of people that are just comfortable calling it the queer community so so these um advocates and people that worked towards bringing about social justice um, were all highlighted at a dis- uh, a gallery display at the TET center this year and and that gave people a top uh, a chance to just go and actually read about some of the history that they weren't aware of both in um in things that happened but more particularly about people who made things happen, so.
0: And so those people had to exist for Pride to exist as it is today. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about how it exists today. Uh, So you said there's a greater collaboration between the Pride community and the arts community in Kingston. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's just talk about some of those uh, collaborations. One of the most important ones was the Queer Art Show. Yes,
1: yes, like um, both Reel Out and Harz went together to create the queer art show. And and that started, I think it was June the 4th, so almost the very beginning of the month, and we'll carry on right through the month of June. And so that, that showcases um, queer artists. So that's important, not only because it gives them a, a chance to be known, but of course they have a particular perspective that they bring to their art and and it helps people to understand queer people in general just to see the artwork created by these artists so so that was that was the first of of the many items for this month
0: and so can you speak to some of those actual art
1: pieces themselves I'm afraid I can't. Okay. Um, probably somebody from Harz would, would do a much better job of, of speaking to that. But, um, but that's something that people can still take in. Like okay. most of the other Pride events finished on the weekend. Uh, Sunday was our, our last official event. But, but the, the gallery up at Harz is still going strong for the rest of the month. So. Awesome.
0: Uh, And so I guess one of the questions that I did have was about some of the more explicit pieces in there. I think there are some that do feature uh, full frontal male nudity. And Mm -hmm. so what is the significance of representing something so, I guess, explicit?
1: Well, I mean, in the art world, full frontal nudity is not new. (laughs) That's been around for (laughs) hundreds of years. And, well, probably a lot longer than that. I'm not an art historian, but I mean, there is absolutely nothing new about full frontal nudity. Um, Now, it's true that in the past, a lot of artists concentrated on female form. So it may be a little unusual, but but not all of them did that. And so there certainly was in statues and in paintings, there was full frontal male nudity. So I mean... It's, it's not like that's something that is done for um, like a shock value or anything like that. It's just part of the expression. As I mentioned, um, queer artists will have their own perspective on things and they bring them to the forefront, <laughs> if I can put it that way, of their artwork.
0: And so uh, what were some of the other uh, art related events that we've seen throughout this month or continue to see?
1: Well, one is the, is the other piece that I mentioned, the the, the gallery at the tent, set, tent center that were willing to display our, our sort of historical portraits and, and the write-ups that went with them. There was also a performance of a, a really interesting show. I didn't get to see it. It sold out um, and I unfortunately was so busy I hadn't got a chance to buy tickets, but th- that was at the Isabel. Um, I think it was called Box Four Nine O One, and it was this story of uh, a young gay man um, who 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 took out a. a it, it was really talking about how how gay men used to meet, when, back when it was um, much harder to to find ways. We, it was pre grinder etc. So so he took out a, a a post office box, put an ad in the paper, and and uh, just got. All these responses, but never followed up on them. And then, um, well, I, I won't say any more about the, the the actual story. But anyway, so that was that was one another piece. And again, so that was totally done by um, you know outside performers and groups. Um, but they tied in with, made it one of the events in in the week. So yeah. okay, and um, then on Sunday in collaboration with Tone Deaf uh, Music and the Skeleton Park Arts Festival, Kingston Pride joined with them to, to host a concert by Beverly Glenn Copeland. And uh, uh, if you're old enough, you might remember <laughs> Beverly Copeland as one of the, the, the sort of big musician on Mr. Dress Up. And um, so that would be going back quite a few years. But... Uh, uh, Glenn transitioned from female to male uh, at some point. Um, there was there was kind of a hiatus in, in his career and um, then all of a sudden there was interest in his music again and so he's doing a tour all the way across uh, Canada right up into the Northwest Territories this summer and um, he's traveling with a, a, a band called Indigo Rising and uh, it was a wonderful performance, I can tell you, and uh, very, uh, very interesting music, not uh, I, I, I couldn't for the life of me pin it to any one stream <laughs> so, or genre. So,
0: And so uh, this is a show that focuses not only on arts, but also the culture. Uh, so in terms of some of the cultural events uh, not connected to the arts, what were some of your favorites that happened or are going to happen uh, this month still?
1: Uh, so, um, I think from a point of view of culture, I was, I was really, really thrilled that the, um, there's a, a drumming collective that is called All In. And they agreed to come and do a, a, a land acknowledgement for us as part of our opening ceremony. And not only did they do the land acknowledgement, they did some singing and drumming. And then they stayed in the park all day. They had a nice spot off to the side that was a really good spot to go and visit them. And um, so they drummed and and they had spare drums. So especially the kids were willing to come along and try out a drum. Um, Adults seemed to be a little less likely to pick up a drum and, and just play in front of other people. But kids seemed to be fascinated. And so it gave them a chance not only to drum with the kids and, and the adults that had come over with them, but also to, to talk about their culture and talk about, um, there were four of them, so from from various Indigenous backgrounds, so they were able to impart a lot of knowledge to people who hadn't had the opportunity to talk about it before.
0: And so I guess building on that, uh, is there one particular experience that you had this past weekend or this month that stands out above all else or?
1: I, th- I would say that that um, opening ceremony with the land acknowledgement and the singing and drumming, um, uh, I, I, I was not in a place where I could be too emotional because I had to talk before and after. But I know, I know there were other people that came up to me and, and commented on how, how that all, it just moved them to tears. And and for me, it was a very strong emotional response, even though I had to try and hold on to things. But, yeah.
0: So that's a little bit about the present of how things rolled out this year. Uh, so if we can talk a little bit about the future of Pride in Kingston and the future of uh, the community. Um, what are some projects or events that you'd like to take on in the future?
1: Well, I think it's it's always our intent to continue to, first of all, to advocate for what we would call our community, again, the queer community. That's, that's pretty much our, our, our mandate is to try and advocate for that community anywhere where we feel we need to, to have a, a position. We obviously, we, we don't say that we speak for all of the people in our community because we're a group of six people. We couldn't possibly speak for everybody um, I guess the 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 cis straight community thinks sometimes of of the pride community, the queer community, as being one big group, and we are nowhere near one big group. <laughs> we are this hugely diverse group of people. We have people with a whole variety of sexual orientations, a whole variety of gender expressions. And and then on top of that, we have all of the same um, differences that the cis straight community has. So we have different different cultures, we have different languages, we have different uh, religious backgrounds or no background in religion, and we, you know, we're just hugely diverse. So we don't speak for all of those people, um, but we we see it as our mandate to be there for all of those people, and so. I think that for the future, we, we really want to concentrate on getting to know um, some of the parts of our community that we haven't really heard from. So, so for instance, the Two-Spirit people, the indigenous peoples. Um, we have a lot of work to do in helping to educate ourselves and, and to find people who will educate us on the perspective of the Two-Spirit people. Um, the same would go would, would be true of um, refugees that are also part of our community by virtue of sexual orientation or, or gender identity, but who, again, we don't know a lot about what makes them the way they are and what's their culture like and, and their experience, their, their lived life experience. Um, so there's, there's all of these different things that we still have to be much more educated on. And as I say, there's, there's only six of us and we don't, we're not there forever. But I think if we work towards educating ourselves as, as, as this small group, that's something that we can help to pass on to those who come behind us as, as the new boards as they come. So,
0: so it's about helping to amplify the voices of those who might not have one. Mm-hmm. hmm Okay. Uh, and so, We've talked about some trailblazers whose experiences have helped build Pride Month uh, as we know it. And is it weird to think about that as you pass this learning on to future generations that the people who are making Pride as it is right now might become those same figures for future generations?
1: One never knows. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's possible. I I don't look at myself as a trailblazer, um, but... I mean, we all do our part. And, and that's, I think that's what's key is that all of those people that are now recognized as trailblazers, they did their part. They, they saw the need, whatever it was, and they did something about it. Um, whether anybody will ever write up a story about me, I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't really need to know. But, um, I mean, that's obviously not... I don't, I, certainly for myself, that's not why I'm there. That's not why I'm part of the board. Um, I'm there, again, simply because I can see the need and I, and I want to 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 make uh, life a better place in Kingston. And if that translates around the rest of the country, great. <laughs> and
0: so, or at least Pride, the big parade weekend is over mm-hmm. for this year. Um, and I that is your primary responsibility of the board that you're on, or to help facilitate a lot of the other events that come in.
1: Well, y- yeah, certainly, certainly the Pride Week is our big event, okay. and y- y- or the 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 series of events that take place during yes. that week are, is is sort of our our. A- again, even even the, the queer community might say that's that's what you're there for, <laughs> so um, and it's true. That's one of the things we're there for, but we do, uh, as well as working on that throughout the year as we prepare for it, cause it is, it does take a lot of preparation. Um, but we're, we're always open to what other places we need to do things. And that would include, as I said, the, our, our own education as a group. So,
0: so I, I guess work starts pretty soon on next year's week. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for those who do want to get involved, where can they reach out to? How can they get involved for next
1: year? So, um, the easiest way is just to go um, contact us through our our website, which is just kingstonpride.com. dot com, and um, there's there's a a link for volunteering, or you can you can get a hold of any of the pride team members again through through that um, website. Um, all our contact information is there and um, yeah we we have as I say six people on the team and we can have 10 directors so we've got lots of room if somebody wants to play a, 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 a sort of major role but we also are, are always looking for people that just want to volunteer for a little bit or have a, a particular thing they want to do and, and so we're happy to hear from them and um, that's that's pretty much the way we, we go at it so yeah King, just go to kingston pride and you'll find a way to fit in somewhere
0: that is about all the time that we do have for today once again this was ruth wood president of kingston pride thank you so much for your time here today we at cfrc greatly appreciate it and wish you the best of luck with next year's pride are there any other comments that you have today uh, i don't think so but
1: again thanks for having me here
0: so for those of you who didn't go to Pride, you know maybe that's something you do want to check out in the near future. There's still plenty of events going on for the rest of the month, and if not, then you can always go to next year's parade, which I'm assuming will happen uh, around Princess Street around the same time next year. Another thing that we like to do on this segment is highlight some of the local bands that are coming up, popping up around Kingston, and this one group up next is called Fosters. There's a blues outfit, out of Kingston, and they just released an EP called the Nearly Departed EP, and this is one of the lead singles off of that, it's called Dead, and it is the radio edit. Great band, great blues rock, enjoy. Yeah. And once again, that was the band Odd Fosters out of Kingston with the song Dead off of their latest EP, Nearly Departed. Up next, we have an interview with Neil Orford, and Neil is the program leader at Defining Moments Canada, and Defining Moments Canada is bringing a traveling exhibit all the way around Canada about the Spanish flu, and this is called Struggle Without Rest. And it's pretty cool because the Spanish flu is one of those things that doesn't really get talked about much in a historical context, even though it killed about as many Canadians as the First World War did. And even then, it only really gets talked about in the context of the First World War. So, Defining Moments Canada is bringing this exhibit through to teach people about really what the Spanish flu's place was in bringing around modern medical systems to Canada. And so, right now, without further ado, we have a interview with Neil Orford. Uh, Neil Orford is the program leader for Defining Moments Canada, an organization that sets out to ensure the stories of Canadians at pivotal points in our history are not forgotten. Neil was a classroom teacher for 31 years and received several prestigious awards in his tenure, including the 2013 Canadian Governor General's Award for History Teaching. He will be in Kingston next Tuesday, June 25th, to present an exhibit in conjunction with the Museum of Healthcare and the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. This exhibit is called Struggle Without Rest and will feature the stories of those affected by the Spanish flu. But today we have Neil in to talk with us about Defining Moments Canada, the exhibit, and some of the stories. So glad to have you with us, Neil.
2: Glad to be with you, Michael, thank you. Uh,
0: So let's talk a bit about yourself and Defining Moments Canada, just to set up context for the exhibit. Uh, So can you talk about how Defining Moments Canada came to be?
2: Well, it's a great uh, uh, Canadian story of uh, perseverance and uh, innovation, I think. Uh, We were very lucky at the outset to have the support of the Canadian government uh, through the Ministry of uh, Canadian Heritage, uh, who came along with us uh, on the journey from 2016 onwards. We had started very uh, very small as a high school program uh, in Dufferin County, Ontario, The program was initially designed so that uh, students uh, studying uh, a variety of different subject backgrounds in high school could take a semester uh, outside of the school uh, through a program known as experiential learning and study uh, in situ at a a local museum where they would uh, uh, do their four credits for their semester-long work uh, while at the same time also pursuing uh, investigation and research into a variety of different uh, local history topics, and uh, we we, we were very uh, um, insistent at the start that we do our best to marry uh, history uh, with mathematics, and that the principles of uh, historical understanding as well as the principles of of math uh, very much are are easy to integrate and uh, complement one another. And so we received a fair bit of attention from both the provincial and subsequently the federal government on that. And when I retired, uh, there was an invitation from the federal government to see if we could develop this program uh, nationally, uh, which we've done through Defining Moments Canada. And our first project was on the uh, 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu pandemic.
0: Awesome. And so what kind of inspired that seemingly radical, uh, I guess not (laughs) radical, but out-of-the-box approach to education?
2: Well, I appreciate you calling it radical. It certainly was bold. Um, for many years in the classroom, I had, uh, I had always uh, insisted with my students that uh, the work of a good historian is bolstered by the work of archivists uh, who uh, spend a great deal of time uh, managing data. And that most students going on to post-secondary education in Canada, certainly, would uh, take a course, uh, for instance, at Queen's, in their first year in statistics and the management of statistics It is fundamental to what archivists do. Uh, and that's fundamental to what uh, good historical research is founded upon. So that uh, in Canada, if we were going to tackle uh, significant uh, projects in historical understanding, that we needed to be able to manage our data and understand the significance of what statistics mean um, at a a reasonably sophisticated level. And I was always quite uh, uh, sure that students in high school were capable of doing that, given the right opportunity. And it seemed to make sense that if we were able to take students out of the classroom and put them in in an authentic learning environment, like a museum, for instance, uh, that we could challenge them with some uh, really... uh, Rich problem-solving uh, exercises, and uh, demonstrate how uh, uh, historical research and mathematics principles of, of data management uh, could work uh, together um, collaboratively and create some really new, uh, exciting uh, understandings in history.
0: So one see, or one thing that I see routinely pop up is that you're trying to push the envelope in terms of what's possible or what's possible with digital technology in the classroom. Yes. Uh, so, what are some of the digital tools that you're using to help uh, create a better learning environment for some of your students?
2: Well, I, I think uh, first and foremost, and I don't want to get too, I don't want to talk too technoly here, but first and foremost, uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, great benefit of experiential learning and experiential learning possibilities is that we are able to put students in the driver's seat of their own learning. And um, that's where I think uh, uh, students find uh, the greatest traction in in, uh, the digital world is that they can access uh, now uh, um, more data and more ideas um, and more uh, uh, sharing, crowd-sharing opportunities through digital technologies than ever before. Um, Using a a traditional textbook uh, still has a place in in, uh, the classroom but giving students the opportunity to work that's being done in uh, in, in digital technologies and how uh, history can be uh, adapted to those digital technologies really uh, uh, unpacks an entirely new world for them. So we certainly, uh, we certainly put them in a a, a position where they uh, can experiment uh, with digital technology. And uh, certainly if we, if we do a, if we do a, a, a survey of, some of the most popular history websites in Canada, you'll see that uh, a lot of students are working in digital mapping, uh, that they're doing digital storytelling using maps, using uh, um, uh, uh, lots of uh, um, uh, augmented reality possibilities, uh, as well as uh, very traditional formats of uh, slide presentations and pricey presentations and all kinds of more traditional two-dimensional projects. So we feel that... uh, uh, we're sort of on the cusp of doing something with history in Canada that uh, that hasn't been traditionally embraced in the four walls of the classroom.
0: Awesome. And so that helped us set up context for what this exhibit is going to be. Mm. And one of the things that you really like to stress as well is the importance of storytelling in history education. Yep. So can you talk a little bit about why you really like to stress the importance of storytelling?
2: Well, I, I, I'm probably a lot older than you, Michael. <laughs> um, and certainly uh, um, when I was growing up in, in a period where there was uh, no uh, interactivity and no digital technology to speak of, more than the telephone and the television, um, I learned a great deal of my historical understanding uh, at the knee of my of my grandparents, uh, or if not at the knee at the, uh, at the dinner table, where... Uh, stories were shared uh, regularly and within a a nuclear family. Uh, They became sort of the the, the lingua franca, the currency of of, uh, how we understood our place in our world and how we understood our place in the country. Uh, That's no longer the case for most families, and it's certainly no longer the case for most young students that they uh, are in an environment uh, at a family level where stories are told with frequency and Students can learn the cadence and the parlance of of how storytelling is conducted. Um, That's not to say that students are not capable of doing good storytelling. They are, and the importance in education is to find the means by which they can uh, practice, well, learn the principles and practice it. And particularly when we have uh, so many students uh, in our country now who, uh, for whom English is a second language, it's extremely important to provide them with Storytelling opportunities so that they can characterize their own existence and their own identity as new Canadians, and find those entry points into Canadian history where they can, uh, where, can where they can certainly appreciate the uh, uh, the country on their own uh, for, on their own terms. So we feel very strongly that uh, storytelling has uh, a, a fundamental place in uh, elementary school education, and then more significantly even in secondary school education. And uh, the best way to do that today is to uh, utilize digital technologies to be able to help students uh, become the best storytellers they can. And the corollary to that is that we feel strongly that uh, the better the storyteller, uh, the better the appreciation of Canadian history. And as we have so much access now through digital technologies to uh, oral history and oral testimony, remarkable stories uh, being captured by uh by um, Indigenous uh, uh, knowledge-keepers across the country. We know that the stories of Canada at a very micro level can help to inform a very macro understanding of what it means to be a Canadian for young students.
0: Awesome. So what I understood from that is that a lot of what we can grasp about history as a whole comes from the individual accounts of people just yeah. like you or me.
2: Yes. And that's the that's the easiest and also the most uh, uh, meaningful place uh, for students to, first of all, get an appreciation for history. And, and it comes from um, self-identifying and, and from uh, recognizing a place for yourself uh, in our country's story, which fundamentally starts at a local level. And over the course of the last uh, 30, 40 years, I think we have moved away from a good understanding of our of our local histories um, in favor of more uh, uh, macro narrative storytelling, which is which is powerfully important, um, but it also sort of uh, destabilize can have a destabilizing effect uh, for people uh, uh, and young students uh, um, if they're not exposed to story uh, in a family context, often find it difficult to find their place without um, without local history.
0: Okay, so I guess that's a good segue as we'll get into the exhibit itself. Yeah. Uh, so when people come to this exhibit, to this presentation, uh, and they see you presenting, what will they get to experience? Well, I think there's
2: two parts to answer that question, Michael. The first is that um, uh, at Kingston Public Library, Kingston Front Public Library, we're, we're very proud to have our traveling exhibit, which is uh, an exhibition of seven um uh, panels uh, containing, uh, just while speaking about containing micro-historical stories of how the 1918 pandemic affected uh, communities uh, across the country. And that traveling exhibit is just is sound, it's been traveling the country for the last two years um, in a variety of different locations, uh, from coast to coast and almost to coast. We haven't quite gotten into the north yet. Uh, but we still hope to. Um, sharing those stories and exhibiting those stories and encouraging local community groups, uh, local heritage groups, uh, local museums, local public libraries, like the one in Kingston, um, to uh, drill down into their own uh, local history and find out exactly how the pandemic affected uh, people in your community. Uh, and the samples that we have on our seven panels are right across. And, and really provide a rich, a rich tapestry of, of, uh, of uh, different stories about how the pandemic affected uh, this country, but on a very local level. It's, it's, not, meant to, it's not meant to characterize a national story. Uh, uh, um, it's meant to characterize individual and community stories. Well, that's the first part. The second part, of course, is the presentation that I'll be making on the 25th at the library. Uh, featuring uh, uh, not just those stories, but also uh, the national story, and I'll speak more to the national story. In my
0: and so, I guess this would only be possible because of the digital tools that Defining Moments Canada is using.
2: Exactly, so sourcing those uh, stories from across Canada has uh, has been our goal and continues to be our goal. With uh, that, with the pandemic as a defining moment, and then others that we're going to pursue too. Uh, encouraging communities to do that kind of uh, uh, very grassroots, organic uh, uh, heritage work to expose those stories and then share them uh, nationally through our platform.
0: So the Spanish flu is somewhat overlooked in Canadian history. Uh, I don't recall ever learning about it during high school and haven't really came across it since then. I mean, to be honest, all I really know is that it caused the uh, 1919 Stanley Cup to not have a winner and that's the only time for that to happen, other than the 2005 lockout. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, given how much Canadians love hockey, it must have been pretty serious. So, why did you choose this as a topic uh, for the exhibit?
2: That's a great question, Michael. And I think I think there's a, a number of um, a number of pieces, a number of uh, pieces to answer that question. Uh, yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, in our history uh, classes across the country. The uh, Spanish flu pa- pandemic has largely been a footnote. Um, uh, 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 if, if it was taught, it was always taught within the context of the end of the First World War, uh, and uh, usually taught, as, a, as, a, as, as I say, as a bit of a footnote, um, which, is, which does a disservice to the uh, incredible history of it and the significant uh, effect that it had in shaping modern Canada. Our contention in uh, the project that we've uh, uh, been doing is that the Spanish flu pandemic of 1990 shaped this country in every way as much and as significantly as did the First World War, and that it has been through a process of both uh, negligence and oversight um, that it has not been taught and uh, has not been understood by Canadians. Um, over the last the century, and our goal has been, and you shall see on our website, our goal continues to be to, uh, to tell untold stories uh, from voices which, in many cases, have been too long unheard. So it's it, it's a really important function of defining moments in Canada to find those stories. The Spanish Uprising is probably one of those moments in Canadian history that deserves the kind of exposure and and light shone upon it that it hasn't had. Um, And the best way to do that is by showing the stories of communities across Canada in in ways that uh, demonstrate how deeply deeply the Spanish will affect our people. Uh, We know statistically that Spanish flu pandemic killed almost as many people in Canada as did the first world war, obviously in different ways and in a different timeline, whereas the First World War tragically took uh, young men and and some young women uh, over the course of a four, almost five-year timeline. The Spanish flu pandemic was largely condensed into three waves, of which one of the waves uh, took most of the people, and that was over the course of a, a two-to-three-month period in 1918. And if we can just use our historical imagination to to uh, uh, imagine what the impact and the uh, of, of those kinds of losses must have been on communities across the country, such a constrained timeline, we all have to sort of take a, 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 a moment, a pause, to say, my gosh, that must have been a significant piece of history, and why is it that we haven't paid enough attention
0: to it? So I tend to think of history as a vehicle for learning about the mistakes of our past so as not to repeat them in the future. Um, What are some of the mistakes that we made during this pandemic that we might be able to learn from, say, if something similar arises in the future?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And I appreciate the premise there that history is our best teacher. Uh, in most cases, uh, uh, a good, strong understanding and grasp of history uh, helps us um, in how we shape our our understandings of our current world. Um, it, it's sometimes difficult to characterize what went on in 1918, 1919, as a series of mistakes. Um, and 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 we take pains in the project not to characterize them as mistakes. Um, and it, it's, it's principally because... Pandemic as it broke out across the country um, was something that really had never been seen before uh, in, in in the way it was uh, breaking out. Um, mistakes that were made were la- made largely because people uh, in Canada as 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 around the world just weren't completely sure what it was they were dealing with. And whereas other uh, pandemics and epidemics years gone by had behaved. Uh, in a fairly predictable manner. This one didn't. And the behavior of this pandemic, you now know it was a, uh, caused by a variant of the one virus, um, was so unusual and, and, and uh, afflicted people uh, in age groups that ordinarily uh, influenza would not have. So uh, the mistakes, if we're going to call them that, I, I'd like to say were... Um, made by people who were of well intention, and uh, though they might by today's names be accused of making mistakes, at the time they were almost understandable.
0: So suppose someone uh, out there, one of our listeners, has a story themselves or in their family that they know of, where can they come to share it uh, to you and to Defining Moments Canada?
2: Thank you. That's uh, <laughs> That's very important. We want those stories. Um, it, it's very rare, Michael, that I make a presentation across the country about the 1918-1919 uh, pandemic that I don't have people coming up to me afterwards and saying and, and telling me their family story. We we uh, uh, our experience is that we have a a, a, a tremendous number of stories in every community we go to that need to be exposed. And so the Defining Moments website, uh, definingmoments.ca, has a story portal on it, and you can certainly share those stories with us. Uh, We encourage people to reach out to us um, by email and let us know uh, what they know about their family stories, um, express whether they're interested in writing them for us, uh, we would be more than willing to share those on the website and more than willing to add them to our, uh, uh, to our assets because collecting those stories is vital to how we keep uh, uh, the uh, um, significance of what happened 100 years ago alive. Uh, and whether you're from Grand Prairie, Alberta, or whether you're from Labrador, uh, or, or any other community in the country, big or small, know that those stories contribute to uh, a better appreciation for what went on.
0: Great. So we are starting to run out of time today. Uh, Sure. So suppose someone doesn't have any stories, but they still want to learn more about the flu. uh, They'll be able to come out and see you on Tuesday, June 25th at the Kingston Frontenac Public Library uh, at 7pm, I believe, right? Yes. And so uh, the exhibits will be there for all of June. You're going to be there at that time. Uh, what can people see at the exhibit on their own?
2: Well, we have, uh, we have presented for uh, uh, communities across Canada in these of panels what we believe are the best representation stories to get a good appreciation and a good grasp of how the pandemic affected uh, Canada. If you don't speak to the internationals. Uh, I'll do that in my presentation. But on the seven panels, we feel that if you are to uh, uh, spend the time to look at all of them and examine the pictures and read the stories, uh, you'll come away with a a much deeper sense of the significance of this, as it is a defining moment in shaping Canadian history. Uh, So that's the first thing. We would challenge everybody, though, once they have uh, seen the panel, to go to the website where all of the stories that they will have on the panels are told in greater detail. But as well, we have uh, probably the greatest uh, array of uh, digital assets, um, pictures, um, infographics, statistical analysis, uh, academic research, uh, popular press. We feel we have the, the greatest array of digital assets to help anybody who has even a pedestrian To learn the stories, um, uh, and and also to get a sort of a sense of the macro history and how uh, and how our contention that this has shaped Canada as much as the First World War did um, really takes uh, takes hold.
0: Great, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Neil. We appreciate having you on, and for all the listeners out there, make sure to go check out the exhibit. It will have some fascinating stories, especially regarding our local community here in Kingston. Uh, Thank you very much, Neil.
2: You're most welcome, Michael, and I'm looking forward to seeing lots of people on uh, the 25th.
0: And so that was Neil Orford of Defining Moments Canada. And we're going to try and squeeze one last track into here. This is Paper Ladies another Kingston band. This is a little bit more punkish, a little bit more alternative, and this is one of their tracks called Don't Go Outside off of their 2017 EP Reflections. Kingston this week. I'm Michael Ashton Smith, and once again, some other things that you might want to check out this week that aren't Pride or Struggle Without Rest include the Skeleton Park Arts Festival happening this weekend at Skeleton Park. Some great stuff that'll be going on all weekend, and make sure to check that out. Unfortunately, don't have the time to cover it in this session, but look out next week, Wednesdays at 10 o'clock, Maybe I'll have some interviews with some of the artists there at that festival. Thank you so much and have a great day.